0: I would like to propose a toast To International Women's Day This podcast is a bit of a sausage fest But I don't want you to take that As like an intentional thing right, right. Uh, We appreciate you Front to back all the time And we've tried aggressively To get our significant others on the podcast We have no, no idea how many times right? And they uh, refuse to do it they, they are refusing to do it So that's, that's on them Let them know about it in the comments That's right. But uh, until then Cheers to International Women's Day Absolutely right Thank you Hey everybody, I'm Caleb I'm Spencer And this is the Mix 6 podcast where we drink six beers and have six random conversations Uh, I like to start off every episode with thanking you for listening, regardless of who you are And especially thanking our patrons who are helping us out and buying us booze It's a double thanks keeping the dream alive They really are Uh, So uh, we do a five-point rating system on this podcast Mm -hmm. Spencer has come up with one for us, I don't know what it is So lay it on it, Spencer. So we will go through a number of beers, one beer per segment. We'll rate and review those things. And today, as you know, our rating system is pretty dynamic from episode to episode. And so today, I propose that our rating system is a ranking of Tarantino films. All right? Okay. Now, there's a caveat here. One, I don't remember much about Death Proof for one reason or another, so it didn't make the list for me. And two, I didn't watch The Hateful Eight on purpose. So I'm being... Specifically, ignorant in two areas. All right, I don't think hateful hate gets above a two. Okay, for like most of humanity. Right, totally fair. It so, looks pretty. So here's here's the rating system as I have devised it, and as you know at this point, if you've been listening, a one is a beer that you absolutely don't want to drink again. Maybe it turned you off the idea of beer in the first place. Okay, and a five is a beer that has changed your view of beer. Okay, and in this case, changed your view of film. So a one for me. Is Django Unchained. All right. I absolutely hate that movie, and it's the reason that I didn't watch Hateful Eight because I dislike. You don't like a Tarantino Western. I disliked the last thing I saw from Tarantino so much that I just avoided doing another thing. Alright, I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. Okay. No, that's on. A two is Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. Now, this one's questionable. I'm off the boat. Okay, no, it's questionable, and I understand it's questionable. God, Producer Ross looks like he had a mini seizure when I. Someone throw me a life raft. All right. Here's the thing. So, objectively, Jackie Brown may or may not be a bad film, but we're also talking about stacking Jackie Brown up against a lot of other great films. And so when I look at those things and I say, of the remaining great films that we're talking about, which one is the one that I'm least likely to watch? And it's Jackie Brown, because it's a lot of meandering dialogue, which I know is at the heart of Tarantino, but not in an interesting or purposeful way for me. So Jackie Brown is a two. Okay. A three, which is kind of your standard bearer. It's the go-to for you. You need to drink a beer that you want to enjoy because you want to drink for the rest of the afternoon and maybe work's been bad. A three for me is Kill Bill 2. All right? In an ideal scenario, I would have put Kill Bill and Kill Bill 2 together and just said Kill Bill, and it would have been the five. But I thought that would be unfair, and we've drawn with pretty clear brushes between So Kill things. Bill's your five? Wait. Wait, Caleb. <laughs> Numbers are in order hey, I can use context clues too All So right. so Kill Bill 2 is my 3 um, I think some parts of Kill Bill 2 Are excessively boring I also think the dialogue between uh, Beatrix And Bill about Clark Kent And Superman is one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen oh, yeah. And so that for me is why It almost made its way up to a 4-5 Yeah, that's two levels on a Superman conversation alone Got it Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Inglourious, yeah I see now Yeah. Never. Right, yeah, absolutely. yeah Inglorious Bastards is four. I find that film Wait, wait, wait. I know Kill Bill's your five. You've you've let the cat out of the bag. Maybe. You have a Tarantino list with no Pulp Fiction on it. Yeah. So Or Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. You can at least put Reservoir Dogs out for being mainly stolen from City on Fire. <laughs> yes. But okay just keep explaining the list i do have a list without (laughs) pulp fiction on it in the future caleb if you would like to make the lists okay (laughs) so inglorious bastards is a four i think that movie is brilliant i think the dialogue is interesting i think the historical context is fascinatingly explored by whatever it is the fuck that tarantino does and a five as you have so eloquently ruined mr stokes is kill bill Um, a film that I understand is parroted from a number of other genres and and straight stolen from I'm, other films even. I'm, I mean, you can't discount Tarantino films for that alone. That's right. Yeah. It, it, I found yeah. it so profoundly stunning that it felt at the time when I saw it some, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, um, revelatory in in terms of what I had seen in terms of cinema. Fair and enough. so, yes. So that is the rating system, despite your not-so-silent, but grudging approach to the whole thing. A one is Django, a two is Jackie Brown, a three is Kill Bill 2, a four is Inglorious Bastards, and a five is Kill Bill. Yes, I left Pulp, fil- pulp Fiction off the list. All right, um, well, I'm going to apologize to our listeners, and I want you to know that I'm with you on this, and that I'm sorry for letting her quality slip this way, uh, but we're just going to have to, you know, like a... <sighs> Like, I want to put Like uh, a number one beer Like like a Django and Change We're just going to have to swallow this We're going to have to get through this episode Push on through the other side And we'll, we'll find a new writing system on the other side I want to put a Hatori Hanzo <laughs> through your face right now <laughs> I want you to know that Fair enough Okay, on that note We're moving to segment one Where you get to review a beer Using my brilliant rating system <laughs> Hey, Spence, what are you drinking? So I am drinking, and I'm going to screw it. So a Spanning & sensate or Sensatee, I'm not totally sure. It's from Brewerij de Molen. Okay, so I totally screwed that up, but I leaned into it when I screwed yeah. up. Yeah, I screwed it up like My Name is Earl would have screwed Somewhere it up. Somewhere in the Netherlands. Right, so it's totally fine. From a brewery in the Netherlands, and I understand that you picked this beer out because it was excessively highly rated. A 98% on Beer Advocate. Which is ridiculous, by and the way. And it was a $12 bottle. You spent $12 on this bottle of beer? I told you if you were going to buy the... Hot takes on ice stuff, I would go all out on Jesus. the beer. Well now I feel bad for giving it like a four. Um so what, what's a four again? Inglorious bastards. Maybe and you've that's heard? what you should feel bad okay. for. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. God. <laughs> sometimes, anyway. sometimes, sometimes I don't know why I choose to do this. Okay? <laughs> anyway, describe the beer. Yeah. So, anyways, um it is it, it's very malty uh in, in feel and and that's because it's got a lot of malts. So there's some chocolate on the front end and some and on the back end there's a lot of smoke. So it almost tastes like there there's like some bacon even on the back end i know there isn't but like a lot of roasted smoked flavor oh yeah um it would be a five So the flavor combinations are great It would be a five for me If it didn't drink so smoothly And I know that's weird But sometimes Like this is how I feel About nitro beers They're so smooth They actually just taste flat You want a little more Tongue impact I do I want a little bit more Carbonation in my yeah. beer And I know that's weird um, But it's the true story So this is like a four Four point five for me If it were a little bit That's very American of you It is like, very American of me Unlike your choice of Tarantino fans. I am who I am Caleb except me Okay Alright yeah. What? Okay, you know what? I'm done. What are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about your trip. So uh, you uh, took a trip to Denver. I did, and you went on a a, a tongue tour of the city. I did. Uh, Not look- like that. <laughs> Not like that at all. Especially since my wife was with me. Yeah. Okay, right. Uh, a you, tasting tour. Yeah, you drank beers throughout the city. Yeah, uh, and uh, we should hear about those beers, those bars, right. and the I know I've done some of the best drinking of my life in Denver. Uh, It is a fantastic place for a person who likes beer That's right And other alcohols So uh, I just wanted to get a travel report in our new segment uh, called Travel Hangover. Travel Hangover. So on the off chance that any of us do some traveling, you, for example, are going to D.C. later this week. Yes. Uh, Producer Ross, you travel semi-regularly for podcast yeah. and or convention reasons and sometimes just for funsies. Uh, you know, I do know Gen Con, they actually have a brewery who does a Gen Con specific uh, beer every year. So I'll try and get at that this year. And I'm sure that's sampled by 20% of the people who attend Gen Con. Yes. Just right. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, so we, we, we want to be able to bring back to you some of the stuff that we try on the road because it's not stuff we're going to review on the podcast. As you all probably know at this point, as many of you have tried to send us alcohol, it's difficult to get beer back to a place. So we're going to do two things. One is I'm going to give you a quick rundown of all of the things that I tried, and I'm going to rate them. So if you can find them, you can also try them. The second thing we're going to do is we're just going to talk about how fucking cool and or weird Denver is. And if you've listened to kind of the companion segment here, hot takes on ice, uh, some some weeks Which earlier, drops, yeah, weeks, earlier. yeah, some weeks earlier, you'll also understand that I had some weird experiences in Denver. So if you haven't heard that, go find that as well, where we talk about kind of the socio-cultural implications of the legalization of marijuana on Denver. But this is totally about now what we're just talking about getting drunk. Now we're just talking about getting fucked up in Denver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so. Here's what you should know. I drank a lot. In fact, that's most of what I did for the three days that I was in Denver. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you where I was and what I drank, and we can talk about the Denver experience. So first thing you should know is I stayed in an Airbnb, um, and that Airbnb was terribly nice. And on the first night, the people that we were staying with, Joel and Emily, were kind enough because they got in before us to go out and, and buy some beer so that when I got there, I had beer. So the first thing I drank in Denver... Uh, was a great divide yeti out of a can which Ooh. was fucking awesome so the yetis they're they're imperial stout and i'm probably miss- good name for a stout. really good name for a stout i'm probably misspeaking but i think it was like over 10 percent uh it was certainly around the 10 percent could have been nine and a half for example not unlike the spanning and Sensity that i'm drinking right now which is also nine and a half percent nope 9.8 getting worse um So anyways, the Great Divide Brewing Company, which I know you can find outside of Denver now. We can find Great Divide beers here, for example. Yeah. Uh, That was a four for me. I also know that the Great Divide Brewing Company wasn't far from where I was staying, but I didn't quite make it because of all the other drinking. So first beer in Denver, Great Divide Yeti, four. Then we go to this little neighborhood restaurant, and it's like in Denver, everything is a neighborhood restaurant. Yes, because the neighborhoods are just little communities. I think I saw them trying to build a McDonald's, and the citizenry tore it down. Yeah, that's right, with their bare hands. Correct. Um, <laughs> yes, correct. And so we went to the neighborhood restaurant, and I'm like, oh, well, that's cute. It's 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 on a corner around some houses. It was also across the street from a pizza place called Sexy Pizza. And I feel like we did it a disservice to ourselves not going into sexy pizza <laughs> just to see what that was like. Anyways, we go to this place called Briar Common. It's a brewery and eatery, so it is a small little, I don't know, I'm imagining they probably had seven or eight taps running, all beer brewed in-house. They had a beautiful brewing system set up in the back. So I tried three beers there. I actually tried a fourth, but at that point I was pretty sauced and forgot to take a note. I'm sorry, everyone, Okay. So I tried their 902 Bravo, which is a a, a Brett, Saison Brett. Um, The only reason I tried this beer is because when I read the menu description, description, they used the word chewy to describe it. (laughs) And I said, well, I want to try that beer. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that was three. It was actually really good. Uh, Well, it was medium good, I guess. Uh, I guess Flannery O'Connor's right, and that's writing whatever you can get away with. Because right. I would initially think chewy for a liquid <laughs> right. is a no-no in yeah. food writing. <laughs> it, it caught me I'm so th- off guard that I went. It okay, was grog I'll have that. all the <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it caught me so off guard that I went. Well, whatever that is, I want to drink that. So that was a three. Then I had their Joyce, which was a straight saison, and it was also a three. Then I had, Joyce is a good name for a. Cezanne. It's a really good name for that's a saison. Seems fitting. Yeah, it's like Joyce oh, is drinking a saison. I know a couple of Joyce's and I would go, yeah, she's a Saison. Yeah. Then I had their Schwartz beer, their German Schwartz beer. That was a four burgeoning on a five. It was, it was creeping up. Here's the thing the Schwartz beer did. Not unlike the spanning and sensitivity. I'm screwing that up every time. Um, had a really, really great flavor, tasted a little flat rather than malty. And so it was creeping up. It was creeping up. All right. So that was the first night. I had a couple beers the first night. Obvi. Um, Can I just say I'm glad how hesitant you are with the 5? Yeah. I feel like the IGN of beer reviews sometimes is like, yeah, <laughs> the disc caught my PS4 on fire, 9.8. Right. Like, yep. Uh, yep. yeah. No, I, I respect you being S- hard to please. So I think I'm, I'm reviewing like somewhere between 9 and 12 drinks mm-hmm. in this Denver trip. One is a 5 because mm. it truly was the best in class that oh. I've tasted. Oh, but that's it. Right, yeah. So that was the first night. Um, We get up the next morning. uh, We did shots of Bullet Bourbon at 10.30 a.m. Bullet Bourbon is a hard five for me in terms of just drinkability. Oh, no. But in terms of quality, it's probably a four. It's my go-to, though. So if you haven't tried Bullet Bourbon and the Bullet Bourbon Rye, uh, totally, totally think you should do that. Anyway, so we start with Bullet Bourbon, four in terms of quality, five in terms of drinkability. Then we go to this great place that I'd been to before, Tap 14. I tweeted a picture of this. And said, "This is a dream." Oh, that, that menu, yeah. yeah. So that was just the beer menu. If you flip it over, it's the same thing, but with only Colorado spirits. So whiskeys, <sighs> vodkas, etc. So all the beers you saw there were Colorado produced. All Cancel the whiskeys on the other side were also <laughs> Colorado produced. Quite unbelievable. It's in Lodo. I've been there before. Had one of the best burgers I've ever had at Tap 14. So I had three beers there. This is 10:45 or 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the Trinity Seven Day Sour. All right, which is out of Colorado. That was a three. A crooked stave petite sour raspberry. Mm. Mm. That was a four. And then Joel ordered a Platte Park Tropical Snow Dance West Coast IPA. That's the whole name. Is that real? It's the. Is it, that a real thing? It's functionally the whole menu is just the one name of that beer. Yes. Um, I've talked about this ad, ad nauseum on this podcast. I've moved out of the IPA game. Joel's still very much in the IPA game, so I trust him. I gave it a 3. Joel gave it a 3.75. He doesn't do this a lot, so he doesn't know that typically we avoid decimals. No big deal, Joel. Yeah, shit. Whole numbers only. Right, right. Fix your shit. (laughs) (laughs) Then, for a break, we walked across the street from Tap 14 to 1-Up. So 1-Up is a barcade in Denver, and they have a couple of different locations. Do they have a brewery, too? They do not. There's a 1-Up brewery. Is there? Yeah. I don't know if it's the same. Yeah. There's also an 8-Bit brewery. So uh, No, that's Tallgrass 8-Bit Pale Ale. Never mind. So anyways, um, 1-Up is a a brewery, or uh, excuse me, an arcade. There are a couple different locations around town. I've been to this 1-Up before. I actually spent my 30th birthday doing some stuff there. Um, At 1-Up, I played a bunch of stand-up arcade games. I played on what claimed to be... The largest Pac-Man game in the world. It's actually a Pac-Man game that's on like a 10-foot 10, 10 screen. It was quite cool. Um, and I, I only had two drinks, but they were both shots of – fill in the blank. Bulletproof? Fireball. Fireball. Oh, man. <laughs> Fucking A were they shots of fireball. I thought you were going to stick with it, but no. Yeah, you got no, it up. No, I was trying to – I uh, forgot Brandy was with you, so everyone was drinking fireball. That's right. Was employees, <laughs> homeless folks on the street. Yep. yep. She was just kind of – we articles. were resurrecting dead folks yes. to serve fireball to them <laughs> at One Up. Yeah, I was trying to sober up, so I took a little break, played some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cabinet, uh, oh, and then God. did two shots Good of fireball. Stuff. Yeah, then we walked across the street to what many have told me is the greatest tap house in the country. I've been twice now, and I think that is an overblown title. Falling Rock Tap House. If there's some good places in KC alone. Yeah. Like yeah. country? So, that's a big claim. A couple of years ago, I think Falling Rock is resting on its laurels a bit. It was voted the greatest alehouse in the country by some like significant beer publication. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, it's like a two, two, probably three double-sided page beer menu. It's pretty excessive. Um, I had two beers there. I had the New Belgium La Folie, which I've actually talked about, I think, in a drinking alone. You and I have both talked oh, about yeah. that beer. That's a solid four for me. I also tried a Petrus Aged Pale Ale. It was a sour dark beer. Really good. Definitely a four. Yeah, and I've not done... Well, I'd like to try a sour dark. While I'm into sours... it's the dark overpower the yep. sour for me. That what does. it does is it gave it... So whereas sours tend to trend on the tart side of things, <clears throat> you know, your typical... Um, Uh, Goza's tend Mm -hmm. to trend on the, the, the tart, very sour, the dark beer sour, at least in the, the minimal experience I've had, tends to trend toward the fruity side of things. So it cuts it not with citrus, but rather with some of the rich fruity tones. Um, and it makes it a little more robust to me. So the Petrist aged pale ale was a four. I really enjoyed it. Um... The rest of that night then was punctuated by a um, a dispensary experience that you've probably heard at this point on uh, Hot Takes on Ice. So we need not get into what happened after that. What a party. Um, And then the next day, we decided to switch things up a bit. I was a little bit hungover, not going to lie about that. And so the morning was a lot of water, which I would give a solid three to. (laughs) Uh, It was fine. But then You're we, your first water. That's right. Then we ended up at a place. A kill Bill Two. Well, like, was it filtered? Was it bottled? Was I don't it know. From the tap. It, oh, it's in Denver. So what probably brand? Filtered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> filtered through. Weed. It's probably it wasn't, bottled it was out of the tap. That's yeah. right. There's that's a hipster right. that just. Pours it into a suction device. (laughs) So I went to the Atomic Cowboy. Had I known that was the name of the place before I walked into it, I probably wouldn't have gone there, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm glad you said that, otherwise I would have judged you. Major judgment. (laughs) Anyways, here's what I learned about the Atomic Cowboy. They had on tap the Victory Sour Monkey. It's the best sour I've ever had, and it was a five. If we did sixes, I'd do a six here. It was a 9.5% sour. Damn. I ordered two of them. I functionally was double fisting them at one point. It was so good. <laughs> uh, after Atomic Cowboy, we went to a place that many people told me is like the best beer hall in Denver. Um, Euclid Hall. It was really wonderful. I absolutely loved it. Um, very cool building. And I tried two beers. The Crooked Stave, which is a local Denver brewery. Uh, Crooked Stave Tart Cherry. That was the three. It kind of tasted like Kool-Aid, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. And a New Belgium Love Apple Felix. It is a whiskey barrel-aged tart beer, 4.5. I know we don't do a lot of decimals. It was almost a 5 for me, but I couldn't quite do it. It was a 4.5. One day we're going to have to do an episode where we just make up every beer on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Love no, Apple Felix no, no, no. is coming back. No, no, you uh, You
1: make it a contest. Half the beers are real. <laughs> Half of them are fake. <laughs> Yep. But but even the real beers You kind of like fudge the names a little bit So people can not just google it <laughs> yeah. So yeah. people have to figure out which are the real beers I yeah. love I that love that Producer Ross, yeah. fucking with
0: the audience <laughs> Two other drinks that I had while in Denver That we haven't covered I went to the Roosevelt Which is a fine whiskey bar in Denver uh, That's um, a good name for a whiskey bar It is I had And they hide the bathrooms behind bookcases Which is brilliant And also terribly fucking annoying if you're drunk uh, <laughs> I had the Russell's Six Year Bourbon We typically don't rate whiskeys, but I guess I'll just jump in there. Uh, It was a three for me, a little too much bite on the front end. Fair enough. Not a back end that I cared about. But Joel also let me sample some of his Lagavulin 16. Ooh. My goodness. As someone who Mm. doesn't love scotch... What I've learned is I don't I love, love that Scotch. I don't love peaty Scotch, but I do really enjoy smoky scotches. Oh, peaty Scotch is the worst. Yes, you remember that flight I had that one? Time? I do, and I remember it was like to there vomit. was like there was like a peat row, and I wanted to die. Yeah, and then there was a smoke row that was only thing kept me going. That's right. That's yeah. right. So I like the Scotch because it didn't taste like what I assume is an armpit, um, mm-hmm. and the Lagavulin 16 was incredible. I don't know that I've ever consumed anything that had so many layers. But I could have timed in minutes the amount of different tastes that I was getting on the back end of that drink. It was a hard five for me. It's one of the few scotches I've tasted and thought, okay, well, if I had a bottle of that, I would drink scotch regularly. Yeah. So thank you, Joel, for letting me do that. Um, but more importantly, that was kind of the whirlwind end of my two and a half days of drinking in Denver. I am super jealous. It was awesome. I am really excited to go travel and drink in DC. <laughs> yeah. Uh and get some other beers that you haven't tried before. Right. And then come back and here just and just throw me. Neener, neater, neater for you. <laughs> but right now I'm sad, so I'm gonna get another beer. Yeah, well, well one more thing I want to say before we jump into other beer. Uh so I've been a lot of places and I've done a lot of drinking. I think that's probably clear by now. If you don't know it, my liver certainly does. Um But this is the first time in my life that I've gone somewhere, done an inordinate amount of drinking, and taken copious notes over those drinks because I was excited to report back those drinks to people who genuinely cared about the things that we do. So I just want to take two seconds and thank everybody for participating in this madness um, (laughs) because it's a blast to be able to share these things with you um, because it's just weird shit that we like to do. Yeah. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. On that note, uh, Caleb's going to grab a beer and we're going to keep going. Caleb Stokes, what are you drinking? I am drinking Evil Twin Brewings Yin, an Imperial Taji. Stout? I love it. Love it. Let's go with it. Uh it is ten percent alcohol by volume. Uh I was a little I will admit I was a little skeptical picking this up because I do remember Evil Twins, cactus, chili, agave. Pachamama Porter. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. mistake. the mistake. I remember the mistake. That's right. But this is a solid four, which is an inglorious. You say it so begrudgingly, Caleb. Well, yes. Pick your job (laughs) off the floor. (laughs) Uh, But it is a solid four. It is a delicious stout. It is subtle. Uh, A lot of hints on the back end. Uh, Not overwhelming you with bitterness, which some stouts can. And I quite like it, so it's a solid four. Um, Is it kind of coffee-ish? More Um, chocolate-ish? If I had to say it's more... Caramelish, oh, okay. though I don't know there's anything in there, but it's sort of like yeah, it's a little bit richer. the limbo between chocolate and coffee. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, I like that. Um, so in this segment, uh, beer two dissecting our fun, which is probably at this point our most popular and our most wonderful segment. It's the thing that we seem to be most like educated board games, about. We, don't we like care. who knows? We Fucking like board games, people. Um, we're, we're, we're again today extrapolating beyond any one board game, and instead we're kind of talking about a concept, or in this case a collection of board games, which all rely on a typical mechanic. So we're talking about creative intelligence games, um, games where the mechanic is based almost exclusively on your ability to take something abstract, put words or something concrete to that thing, and communicate that to a group of people. So what we're talking about here are things like Mysterium, Dixit, Probably code names or at least code name pictures. Mm-hmm. Things where you are translating, um, you're really given the ability to make meaning out of an abstract thing. And then the game is based on your ability to make meaning out of that thing. So, Caleb, talk a little bit about why this is interesting to you and, and, and maybe kind of the mechanic that we're talking about here. Well, this is very much a trend in the last, um, I'd say, two. Maybe three at the most years of gaming. uh, This sort of idea of using pictures to communicate information and that being the primary game mechanic. Yeah. And it's to the point where, like, had you gotten to me my first days of RPPR after first designing games when, like, I was far from an expert, but like at least knew what went into it. Had you said, "I'm going to make a game where it's all about communicating information through pre-designed abstract surrealist pictures," yeah, I'd have been like, maybe just, maybe just clone. Timelines or something, maybe maybe do something different. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea, but the fact that they pulled it off is kind of mind blowing, and the fact that so many other people are pulling it off is really amazing because it's really pre-lingual communication of information, right? Like you like, and that's why I put Codename pictures on there because like you use one word to indicate which pictures to pick on the code names grid, which is typical of the typical code names where it's just, you know, words. Right. Only now it's abstract images. Right. And almost like cartoonish symbolism. They're icons more than images at this point. Sure. But that's sort of remarkable. And then, um, but we came to that late. My first game in this was Mysterium, which is a fantastic pick by Sarah. Yeah. uh, My significant other, if you've been listening to. to, Who is very good at going to board game stores and picking things. I'm just like... Oh, I don't know. And then they end up being my favorite game ever for, like, months on an end. And I'm right. like, well, all this thing I researched that said it was good is crap, and yeah. we're never going to play it again. <laughs> yeah. But that thing Sarah pulled off. So Mysterium is a game where one person is a GM, and they play a ghost, communicating to psychics like Clue, but you can only communicate to the psychics through dreams. Yeah. And the dreams are expressed by these beautifully... Stunning. Stunningly painted... Images of like wild surrealist stuff. So, like a ballerina dancing on a rose petal, uh, a guy on a unicycle on a tightrope across this dystopian, like Victorian city. Imagine had Salvador Dali like painted a game. Not been so fucked up and sexual. Yeah. 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 Painted 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 a game. game? It, yeah, Mysterium is just kind of weird shit like that. Um, and you have to communicate elements about the place the murder happened, the person who did the murder, and the weapon right. using these abstract images. It, it's clue through abstract images. Um, and you've played Dixit more than me. Could you s- explain the mechanics of Yeah, that? so Dixit is actually um, not not-too-distant cousin to Mysterium, if you will. I think it's probably the more accessible version of the two, though. Yes, there's less uh, procedural information about when to do what. Right. So, if you're into party games, in particular, you like to play in groups of people, I think Dixit is actually a really good opportunity here, a really good good purchase for you. So, Dixit, um, let's say there are four players. If you are the player whose turn it is, you've got a, a, a various assortment of cards in your hand, and each of those cards just has an image on it. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to come up with a word or a phrase that adequately describes that image. So, for example, I might, looking at, might be looking at five images, and I might say Superman. Then the other three players at the table are going to pull a card out of their hand that they think might also adequately illustrate Superman. They're going to take their three cards and give them to me, I'm going to take my card that is actually the card of choice here. I'm going to shuffle them together, and then I'm going to turn them face up on the table and let the players at the table choose which card they think was mine. Yes. Now, here's the interesting mechanic about Dixit. You want to communicate clearly enough that at least one person guesses your card But not so clearly that that everyone everyone guesses guesses your card, card because it actually diminishes the points that you receive if everyone guesses your card. Alternatively, you don't want to be so abstract that no one gets your card because you get no points either. So the scoring is based on the number of people that choose your card, so how clear you are in communicating to a select few but not all, and also how adept or intuitive the other people at the table are. So Dixit and Mysterium kind of function in the same way, which is you need, to com- you need to adequately communicate an abstract idea in very concrete language. But you need to do it in such a way that it resonates with a person or a few people rather than the whole table, even in some weird way. And here's the thing. Function in the same way to the point where before the Mysterium expansion came out, we got bored of the Mysterium cards. Yes, We started playing with Dixit cards. Yep. And there is literally no difference right. in the game. Pro hack, and you could also do Mysterium cards in the Dis- yeah. Dixit game, just and throw there them would together. also be no. We've also hacked Dixit to be like we can only say sex stuff, yeah. like right, uh, and like you can do all, and transgression is fun when it's not designed by Cards Against Humanity. That's right. And, uh, see previous episode. Yeah, see previous episode. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of phenomenal to me how like these. Genuine artistic expressions. Yes. Because, like, I don't think the art director is being like doing anything other than like it needs to have some red and these colors in it. Right. Like, basically, you need to give them a color swatch and like a palette. And then just go nuts And, and make, like, maybe some ecstasy Yeah, yeah. Go <laughs> and nuts some ecstasy. Yeah. And create some surreal shit And it works with like Dixit It works with a Mysterium I'm pretty sure The codenamed pictures cards Would work If they had color Right That's absolutely right uh, And that's the only Missing input element in it Because uh, color is important But it's not by far Not the only element And the, uh, the only way You communicate information It's not And it's uh, just super intriguing To me as like An advent in board game technology So let me tell you Why I think these games Are so interesting Especially in like four player settings right so if you've got if you've got four people together or two couples which is typically how we play things one of the things that i absolutely love about these games is and i've been thinking a lot about this because we do a lot of like board game or code names pictures or code names or even dixit like later in the evening when we're doing board game nights and we're not sober as it were (laughs) not quite Um, um, what i love about these games is that when you win these games it feels like the victory of secret languages And so one of the things that Brandy and Sarah, our significant others, hate the most about us is that that you and I, and Producer Ross certainly, the three of us could only communicate in abstract pop culture references all day. And it would actually be fun for us. All damn day. Brandy and Sarah would hate it. In fact, they do hate it. And so when you and I play on a team against the two of them, there's some genuine enjoyment Out of you saying something that is so abstract and intuitive and weird that the other two at the table can't understand because that's not their realm of discourse, that's not their language that they speak, but you and I get explicitly, and it seems mind-blowing to them that that made sense to the two of us? Oh, yeah. Another life hack. Play with friends on your team? Not with spouses Absolutely. on your team. Don't. Do I bad. don't care how well I. I know Sarah better than I know you. Yeah. I play Dixit and Mysterium better with you. That's right. And codename's better right. than you than I did with Sarah. No, why? Because that's I no offense. Get, like I don't want to get divorced. Yeah, I don't want to fucking get divorced. It's bad. That's like right. just don't do it. That's right. Just yeah, yeah. Because when we play, it's together, definitely boys v girls are yeah. It's boys just, that are friends vs. boys that you're with Or girls that are friends vs. girls that you're with Yeah, definitely You don't ever want to get caught in the trap of Well, this is so obvious because we've been together for so long You should oh, understand what I'm rough. saying Don't do that That's right No, That's it's right. a huge because mistake when that happens, pack your shit, okay? <laughs> yeah But, given that we play together There are these victories of secret languages that are really, like, empowering Like, I love And that. they beat our ass a lot, too they Like really do. it's not It's not just, like, us It's They have a different secret language That's about right girl stuff. Right. But I don't know. What or it's about. or just like you and I you you and I have played so many games together and we've been doing this this for so long, this banter that sometimes we try to overreach a little bit. Oh yeah, we'll fuck up for the same reason we succeed. That's right. They will just try to play the game. Yeah. Right? Like here are two cards that I need to communicate very clearly, so I'm going to communicate them mm-hmm. very clearly. Clearly. While you and I are like, "Wait. What's the 14th letter?" In The Art of War... Yeah, and they're they're way more strategic, whereas, we'll, like, I think I can get nine cards in this turn. Yeah. We're going to shoot the moon! That's right, yeah. And then we end up fucking up everything and That's right. picking the assassin or something. So I think there are just some interesting dynamics that come with games that, are, that have such loose rules and such loose um, uh, guardrails for interaction. But still competitive. Like, still competitive. You're not just playing... Right. uh calvin ball that 's by right. any means, which I feel like would be the reason I would say never do this two or three years ago, right because you 're going to be playing Calvin ball, but no, right, you just keep the procedural rules tight, who guesses when right, with how much, and and every the solid. conceptual rules go out the window, yeah, yeah, so if you play like couples board game nights, if you do game nights with friends, switching up partnerships, switching up teammates. Um, these games, even with the same cards over and over again and again, given our hack earlier, you can really you can yeah switch buy cards these out three in games way. and like sheer longevity, right. You can just switch card sets right. out. If and you're creating make like your own cards. It would be yeah. the same damn oh, thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, these are why I think these games are really entertaining uh, and and really fulfilling on a, on a board game night. And on that note, I'm gonna grab another beer. Ten four. <laughs> Spence, what are you drinking? This is going to be weird, and I haven't tried it yet. So this is by Avery Brewing. We're Following the rule, we are following the, the Stillwater ru- rule, as it has been coined in our the Stillwater <laughs> rule <laughs> minutes, where good men go to vomit. Um, <laughs> this is Avery Brewing's Lunctus Viribus. Fuck that up. So did they? Maybe uh, it's a barrel-aged sour ale. So fifty percent ale aged in tequila barrels and fifty percent ale aged in Cabernet Sauvignon barrels. So. I'm going to put it in my mouth now. Wait, it's a 50 50 H in different barrels? In tequila and wine barrels. <laughs> so, so it's like a. This could be great or the worst thing you've ever tasted. Right, it's I'm like super a excited. real Count of Monte Cristo beer <laughs> yeah. that we got here, yeah. Oh, that's that's good. Oh, nice. Oh, that makes. Can man, I try it? It's a little bit of blood on the end. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> that might be the Cabernet Sauvignon coming through. Um, That's a four for me. That's an Inglorious Bastards. Um, I like the I like the sour on the front end. Not crazy. I kind of feel like I got punched in the mouth, yeah. but like I was looking for a fight. But I liked it, and I'm like I'm like happy it happened. Yeah, I
1: want to get punched in the mouth. <laughs> there's
0: there's a little bit of like Tyler Durden, like oh this was a lot of fun, and now I taste blood. Ooh. So I I hate a sour, and I like that sour. Yeah. So, anyways, that's a four for me. If I like the back end more, it would be a five. I don't like the back end all that much. Anyways, that's the beer, and this is the topic. Caleb, what are we talking about? We are going to talk about uh, this was a mistake. This was our number one listener vote, uh, and I and I thought I would throw it to uh, Levi's question because Levi, Levi asked, uh, "Hi lads." Uh what's your favorite piece of media any one book film etc that you used to like but absolutely despise nowadays cheers mm-hmm. and thank you for the cheers thank you um that's a great question but uh y'all as in the collective y'all of uh this was I uh, have voted for this was a mistake as our number one segment and it can't all be about branson so i have to be honest we're human that's right we make mistakes we did and that seems like a question about our mistakes so like we're just going to we're just going to bare our souls here yep and talk about uh, art we have aged beyond. That's right. Things things that have run their course for us. Yes. And, and, and I think when Levi asked the question, he was looking for a piece of media. We, on the other hand, have decided to list five pieces of media. Because we are a font unto our listeners and That's patrons. Caleb, right. do you want to know mine? Uh, yes, we do want to know yours. Producer <laughs> Ross. Okay.
1: It's the Riff's role-playing game. Yeah, I
0: know that one. <laughs> So we have decided. It's on the record, at least. We have decided to list a film, a book, some music, a television show, and a video game that has has lost due to time or age or the passage of the seasons, etc. Do we want to start with film? Sure. This is my worst answer, so I'm going to let you start, so I can come up with worst answer. So I can come up with an apology. Uh, Boondock Saints. Really? Yeah. That's a movie for you which over time has just totally flipped in your... Look, I recognize that everything I love about the movie, Willem Dafoe, Uh, full stop, is the responsibility of Willem Dafoe, full stop, and not the responsibility of the filmmaker, which just seems kind of edgy and equal. Also, I've seen the sequel. Also, I've seen the documentary, Blacklisted, which is about the filmmaker. I was uh, Overnight. Uh, yes. Was it Overnight?
1: I think it's. A, well, the one I've seen is Overnight. That's the one with the uh, behind the scenes footage.
0: Yeah, yeah. I friend. forgot I forgot the name. Yeah. But it's about the director of Boondock Sakes being a bartender in Boston, getting his screenplay greenlit, becoming a star, systematically destroying any chance he has of being a mainstream director by being a dick to everyone. And just the fact that something as competent as Boondock Sakes came out is sort of a miracle. Wow. Um, and now I just feel like. Yeah, like the whole like lesbian shaming thing in the front end with the rule of thumb, like uh, the the uh, gratuitous nakedness of the Irish guys, like the fact that it seems to hate Irish people at the same time it laudifies like and then all of the, like the hyper violence bullshit. Like there's some great bits in it that I still like truly recognize. Yeah, there was a firefight. And it was a beautiful moment. Yo- Again, a Willem Dafoe moment. Right. Almost. A, but then, like, the sort of trans shaming at the end with Williams Defoe which I don't think he picked to do. I think that was a screenplay thing. And the inclusion of Ron Jeremy for any reason at all yeah. um, seemed odd. I i don't hate myself for liking it, but I i want to say, like. Yeah, at a time and a place. Think about what you're doing. Very William Barrett. Son. So this is my worst of the of the five answers here. I'm gonna be completely honest about that. And I don't even know that I feel good about this, but I thought back over all movies that at some point I had any affinity for. And then it I couldn't find ones that had totally flipped for me, had gone left to right. I don't think Boondock had even totally flipped for me. It's right. just definitely majority. Flip. Right. So here's the thing. So then I picked the film that is heading the most in the wrong direction. For Ooh, me. so you went for speed yeah. rather than location. I like that. That's right. So the G force of Beginning to suck Yep And and this is a surprising answer for me But it's Batman Returns Which is the second Tim Burton Batman Oh no Yeah, that's a good one So no, It's It's too stylized. It's too much. It's mannered. Yes, that's absolutely right. this is a Tim Burton movie? You don't say. Right. Like, uh, yeah. What feels so interesting to me about the first Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Batman, is that it doesn't feel like a Tim Burton, Batman, but it does feel like a Batman. Yeah. The second one feels like a Tim Burton movie set in a Batman world. Mm -hmm. And there's such a break in... Danny DeVito's just too much. It's too much. too much, Danny DeVito. There's such a break in what I... And that's not DeVito's fault. No. They just... I'm asked to accept, accept so much more in Batman Returns than I am in Batman that it feels like it violates a line for me. Yeah. And so it's Batman Returns. What, That's not a bad answer what, at all. That's you a go solid with? answer. Yeah, no. Well, I feel decent about it, but not great. Yeah. So what would you go with on book? Uh, take Pick a book by Chuck Palahniuk. Yep. Just, uh, I didn't know what you'd picked. I looked at your notes after I drafted mine. Uh, haunted, Choke, or anything written by Chuck Any Bolognick. late polemic for sure. Like, yeah. probably Choke on. I liked Survivor. Yeah, didn't read Survivor it. Survivor still has a place in my heart. Fight Club has a place in my heart, because I sort of got like, I sort of liked it after I realized I got the joke, like, oh, it's a gay man writing about hypermasculinity, and you thought it was about hypermasculinity. Like, I get that. Wasn't crazy about Visible Monster, but once you get to, like, pygmy yeah. and shit like that, just, no, what was I thinking? Yeah. So, wake the fuck up. Like, like, I was just like, oh, no, he researched this so carefully, and he focuses so much on details. It's a renovation writing. And I'm like, then I read other authors, like, oh, no, other people have done that before. You should just stop reading Animorphs, yeah, and the, uh, not be Polonic be your first discovery of quote unquote serious literature. Yeah, so and yeah, I've moved beyond the 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 stages for me were actually kind of backwards. So it was Palaniac, um because everybody was reading Fight Club at the time. Uh, so I did some Polanyi stuff, but then I read Vonnegut, like a lot of Vonnegut, and then I read a lot of Philip K. Dick. And after I'd gotten through that phase, I said, "Oh, well, this was just a shitty version of those other things." <laughs> yeah. So if you really want to read, it's Kmart Vonnegut. Right. Yeah. If you want to read like like near near stream of whatever absurdism, yeah, just read the people who did it well. Yeah. Um. And and get over it. So I think we agreed that anything by Chuck Polanyi. What'd you go with for music? So with music, I. Uh, I went through a jazz phase, and it's not like I'm outside of a jazz phase. I still listen to jazz a lot, and I still have a deep appreciation of jazz. But it was mainly because I played jazz a lot. I played bass. I did improv- improvisational bass and stuff like that. And so there was a period of my time where, like, your virtuosity technically on the bass was everything to me. So I'm, like, listening to Victor Wooten B-Sides and Jacko Pastorius. And, like, now that I've had, I have had to sell all my basses in college, I still kind of regret not playing music as much as I used to. And so I'm a little sad about that, but now that I've gotten out of, like, the technical performance of bass, which is sort of cartoonish and so fits my personality, I don't want to comment on it, um, and I realize it, and that, you, know, you know what, there's a value in sitting back in the pocket and not being like, I can triple thumb a funk. Solo that's 20 minutes long And like I listen to like all these CDs I have Of like great bass players And with a few exceptions of like Charles Mingus Who is also a fantastic composer And stuff like that I'm just like what am I listening to Why? There's n- literally no melody to this why-, why am I doing this yeah. uh, This was a mistake Yeah so so, any of that weird... Uh, Victor Wooten, definitely. Out. Probably Jacko Pastorius, okay. uh, heavy into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Anybody who's known for being a bass player and right. is not like a good bass player in a good band, yeah. uh, that's, that was my mistake. So mine is far less thought out than yours. I'm going to be honest about that. Mine is what happens when you listen to the radio and how does radio ruin a thing for you? And the thing that radio ruined most for me over the last couple of years was Mumford & Sons. Oh, God. Um, That's so true. Yeah, so I lived on that album for yeah. like a month, and then I heard it everywhere, and I realized I didn't everywhere. need to play the album anymore. Right, and now if it's on, I want to leave. Yeah, so it played everywhere, and everyone had it. Yeah, and it moved. This isn't like a the book was better thing. It was like I couldn't go anywhere and not hear Mumford and Sons after a while, and at that point, I just thought, okay, I can't listen to Mumford and Sons anymore. So it's Mumford and Sons for me. I went downtown from my bar that was playing Mumford and Sons. Into a restaurant that was playing Mumford and Sons, into another bar that had food because I left that restaurant because they were playing Mumford and Sons that was also playing Mumford and Sons. And I thought I was being tortured by the scene. It almost seems like you're being punked. Yeah. Yeah. Punkford and Sons. Um, What'd you go with for TV? Uh, Lost. Yeah. You betrayed me. I used to love it. I used to be so into it. And now, like, I see people liking the first season. And the second season, which got even weirder, I'm like, yes, that's how. And, like, I see people having the same enthusiasm for it. Now that they're rediscovering it on streaming or something that I did. And I just want to slap the shit out and be like, don't do it. See, that's... An don't in- fall for it. That's an interesting interpretation of the it's question It's not prophetic. Because that's like, I feel that way because I've seen it all and I know what happens at the end, rather than I'd seen the whole thing and years later realized the whole thing wasn't good. I know that's a different question. But, but like, I like it. No, but, but like, I like it. I feel like time's a factor either way. It is. And like, how that time is spent... I suppose you get that particulate, but... Yeah. I mean... No, I think it's kind of smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went with something a little on the other end of the spectrum, which was something I absolutely loved as a younger human, and now as an older human, I can't watch. And I don't know why I can't watch it. It's interesting to me, but it's Saved by the Bell. So oh, I, God, no. I cannot watch it. Saved by the Bell growing up. It was my thing. Every morning before school, Saved by the Bell. Um, and even like maybe a... a, a a piece of my existence in college, even, I thought, Saved by the Bell. Like, there was still some interesting nostalgia in the whole thing. You used to be kind of into it, I remember, with yeah, the dorms. Yeah, And And I will always have a deep and abiding love for Tiffany Amber Thiessen's Kelly Kapowski. I First right. crush. You were, all about, you, were, you were always about Kapowski. Right. I remember that much. Yep. But even I remember you kind of deconstructing Zach Morris, yep. who is like a nightmare made flesh. Yeah. Like, anytime you get into the subtext of Saved by the Bell American on Psycho. any level— right. It gets real fucking like yeah. Brady Stinellis and dark. Yeah. Zach, like, Zach Morris is young American psycho is yeah, what he yeah, is. No. Yes. So Aside but, from the fact he can control time. Right. Exactly. And move people <laughs> while he controls time. So I don't know. I've, I've thought often about why. Because like Brandy still wants to watch say by the Bell sometimes when it's on. And I've thought why when it's on do I get uncomfortable? And I don't know that I have a good answer. Part of me thinks it's everything we've learned about Dustin Diamond, who played Screech, over the last ten years. No. Uh, part of me thinks it's deeper. Yeah, about how we now know how horrible the set was for people, and how like uncomfortable the relationships were, and that there was like you know an odd like. Like, awkwardly shunned relationship between Zach Morris and Lisa Turtle for three years, and there was some like uncomfortability around the race relations there. I don't know what it is. I don't know. It's probably some amalgamation of all those things, but I can't watch that show anymore, and that show was very important to me growing up. So, for for me, and I don't think, I think this is why it didn't hit initially. It's the like, everyone gets along. Yeah. The black girl and the kind of native kid get along with Zach Morris and Kelly Kapowski, and the biggest nerd in the school, and they all get along, and there's no such thing as a click. And you know what? I know that's not even true now. Even though kids are way more progressive than they were in our age, sure. but like I knew when I was in school, that was not right the case. Yeah. like yeah. it just seemed reductive. Yeah. Uh, so it could be it could be the reductiveness of the whole thing. And then our last our last category here. What'd you go with for video game? Because this was the this one was the toughest for me. Probably. Oh, the easiest for me. Mass Effect, hardcore Mass Effect. Look, Mass Effect andromeda shit's coming out on YouTube like every fucking day now. And they are so close to hooking me. They're so close. But I'm like a fish that got pulled up into that nightmare escape above the water and almost died. And I flopped out. And I I got out just by the skin of my scales. And I, Mass Effect's ending to 3 as a game that built up for a decade of narrative. I've never seen anything fuck up a landing as hard before our sense. To the point where I've taught creative writing classes where I've said that, wow, that ending really mass-affected, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, it just totally fucking ate it. It's it's not like it took a step after landing. It broke both ankles and then bled out the eyes. And then we all had to watch because the ambulance was held up in traffic. And it got really awkward. And we all thought about mortality. And it, it was just awful. Such, And it was awful for such... Blatantly commercial reasons like the reason they cut the ending out is so they could put the shitty multiplayer component in that no one played and was utterly forgettable and that's the reason they made a game that worked for literally 10 years on a single character be that awful. It, I just, I've never gone from loving something entirely. Mass Effect 2 is still my favorite video game I've ever played. I've never gone so entirely from loving something completely as to loathing it with my core of my being more than Mass Effect 3. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, mine's a little less serious. Don't buy Andromeda. This is why, th- this was the trick for me. I don't. Remember ever hating a video game Because if I hated a video game for more than eight seconds I didn't play it Yeah, yeah. I, I probably shouldn't put that on there for you Because you are a game monogamous I am, I am um, So here's the thing I've landed on The the video game that as an adult I play And think, god this is not the game that I remember it being It's the X-Men arcade game Really? Yeah So I, I remember going to the local Pizza Hut as a child And being obsessed with getting through that game but now that you can play it without having to put quarters in, like on your PlayStation Network download for like five ninety nine or nine ninety nine, and just play through the game, yeah, taking that from experience or anything. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe a couple times just to make sure it wasn't broken. Um, you literally, you literally just jump and punch things. I mean, there's nothing happening there, and and and, and it, it almost has the same reductive effect of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cabinet, also. Which is, it doesn't really matter what turtle or mutant you pick. You're just jumping and moving up and down a screen while you, while you kick at things. Um, it doesn't have the allure that it had for me. Is it? It, it's the nostalgia breaker, I guess, of the group. So, right. anyways, those are our list of things. Thanks again, Levi, there for the question. There you go, question. Levi. We made mistakes. Yeah. We admit it. Mea yeah. culpa. Yeah. I bet you made a mistake too, Levi. So there, how about yeah. that? Okay. <laughs> uh, and on that note, it's time to get more beer. Club, what you drinking? I am drinking Ainger Breweries Celebrator Doppelbach, mm-hmm. uh, which is apparently a ninety nine percent on beer. Advocate. That's crazy. And, yeah, apparently it's real high. So this is another one of those expensive ones. So much so they have a tiny little horse, a this horse ornament, a horse ornament. They hang around every bottle. So I'm going to give it a shot. It's crazy. Good for them. He's tasting now. It's not like a cardboard one either. That's like no three dimensional. It's a nice. That's a, that's something you'd hang on your Christmas tree. Yeah. Okay. So he's tasting for a second time. He nodded in between the two tastes, which makes me think maybe he likes it. All right, licking his lips. It's a four. Okay. Okay. It's a solid it's a four. four for me. Were you trying to think if it was a three or a five there? Uh, I was trying to think if it was a four or a five. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's it's on the upper end of four. Yeah. It's a it's on the upper end of four. It's very good. I think I might have chilled it too much. I was warned not to chill it too right. much. Oh. Uh, but you know, we do what we can. What's with it taste like for you? We have. Um... It's just really drinkable doppelbock. Like it's very smooth, almost no bite, a little bit of bitter back end. Uh, What I want when I'm looking for a doppelbock, and it's a solid four. Okay, Um, I'm not sure I would buy it again just because of the price point. Sure, which is not inconsiderable. Yep, Uh, but it is uh, pretty tasty. It's a it's a solid uh, inglorious. Bastards. there you go yeah so while caleb drinks on a beer that he really likes uh really verging on greatly enjoys i'm keeping this ornament we're into <laughs> beer four here which is ask mixed six so this is a user generated question and we're back to stephen lee who's really knocked out of the park so mvp so far he really askers. he really he's he's audience mvp at this point yeah um uh, who's asked some great questions. Anyone, this one is near and dear to not only us, but but very explicitly what this podcast does. So Stephen Lee asks, are we in the middle of a nerd economy bubble? Um, it seems to me that the number of people chasing money on YouTube, Twitch, Kickstarter, and Patreon, cough, far exceeds anything sustainable. Uh, on the one hand, it seems like a false gold rush. Would you care to express any thoughts on this multimillion-dollar industry largely making its return off young, ambitious, naive creators? and what all of these people trying to make a living off one others' off other's creative works rather than making unique work themselves. He goes out of his way to note he means no offense to the Mix-6, who's very much at the heart of what he's indicting here, which I appreciate, but we get it, Stephen. We're yeah. doing the thing that you're talking about. Yeah. But that also makes us, in some weird way, uniquely expert on the topic. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about uh, producer Ross's thoughts on this. hey oh. hey uh, And my own, because... Uh, I know this is something I fear every time I launch a new project. Like every time I go to Kickstarter, I'm like, "This is it. I pop the bubble. I'm gonna I'm gonna launch it, and no one's gonna be there, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a nightmare." But I've done that like three or four times now, <laughs> and, and it's and not, it's not happened. So, I mean, but at the same time, somebody probably said that about the housing crisis. So it's a question worth worth asking. Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, well, I mean the first thing is the 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 youtube uh online con let's online content creators mm-hmm. you know uh because there's so many platforms and so many ways they can create content um is not a nerd specific thing right. um i mean there's a lot of people who make a lot of money doing this uh and middling amounts of money doing this mm-hmm. uh that are doing things that are not even nerd related you know makeup tutorials or uh playing toys for kids you know there 's a huge YouTube phenomenon of like yeah. youtubers who do things that kids watch over and over and over and over right. again right um so there's that aspect to it that i mean everyone thinks of the nerd stuff first, but it's it 's greater than that so yeah. i don't i think I think it's part of a gradual shift of how people overall consume content i mean it's like it's the shift from it's it's as grad as big and as important as like the the shift from uh, sheet music to radio and vinyl records, uh, or, you know, from radio to TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a generational thing. And, uh, I th- and so we change our habits, our, how we consume media with how the technology changes. Now sure. that we have phones, we start YouTubing. And so, uh yeah, there's a lot of exploitation for for sure. I mean, like uh the PewDiePie controversy, you know, like, oh, it turns out if you're a racist, you get some blowback. Yeah. You know, uh if you're right. anti Semitic. Yeah. Uh guess what? That's, Maybe
0: your Nazi propaganda isn't all that funny.
1: Well, I mean, mm-hmm. like, it's still freedom of speech if people say you're <laughs> spewing Nazi propaganda. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like, guess what? It goes both ways. Um so, and the, the you know a lot of his defenders are too young to understand that you know they they're kids so think, um but that that's a different issue than yeah. like making than the 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 I don't think it's a bubble I think it's I think it's like a seismic shift at how these things happen yeah, like I think the thing is I think Patreon is closer to how people will have careers than the YouTube model the YouTube model is everything i've read is that it's just a nightmare to do the oh, the YouTube DMCAs and Twitch are- Constant and awful and
0: well, copyright, not just, boss bots,
1: yeah. and all that kind of shit. Well, it's not just the DMCA; that that is one aspect of it. Um, but the the gradual thing is, YouTube does not explain how vi- like YouTubers live and die by how they are ranked in search results, and like you know how whenever you watch a video, there's all those that row that column of like, oh, you might like these videos too. Yeah. Like they live and die by how often they show up on their kind of things, and they're
0: blackboxing that algorithm. They, right? they
1: blackbox it and they change it. It used to be like have lots of videos that are three minutes long. Now it's videos that are thirty minutes long. Now it's ten minutes long, and have a really good thumbnail. And they don't explain this stuff, so the YouTubers have to constantly be on top of like these new trends and these micro trends of like how it, exactly to market their things. Uh, and Twitchers, yeah, Twitch streamers have to be on for, you know, there's literally a person who died because yeah. he, was, Poshy, he was streaming. Right? Poshi Bird?
0: Yeah, died like two weeks ago or a week ago. Yeah,
1: because he was streaming 24 hours straight and yeah. he had been, and it wasn't just that. He had been streaming for like 12 to 20 hours a day. Yeah. For a long time, which is an unsustainable. And so the media companies are exploiting the shit out of them. So I think, People are gradually moving to Patreon where the, you know, the patri, the, the, the artist has way more control over, um, how, you know, by creating a paywall that they, they, they can, uh, sort of have, you know, Patreon's basic thing, the website is like, you create, you specify how this paywall works. And uh, then the, the you you negotiate with your your uh, consumers your, right. uh, directly. Sure, and that's I think going to be more sustainable. I think we're going to move more towards that. Then, but I mean, YouTuber and Twitch have the majority of eyeballs. So yeah, it's it, it's I don't know. I mean, I make I'm probably making a lot more money than like ninety five percent of YouTubers right now. Yeah, uh, right. So. yeah. As
0: a pro Patreoner yeah. yourself, uh, and both of you have had successful Kickstarters. Um, so you've kind of seen run the gamut on this thing. Uh, you know, Caleb, from your experience, what's it like? Marxist is Caleb, interrupt! <laughs> Hit me splash. with my theme m- music, Ross. Mm-hmm. And for those of you playing the Mix-6 drinking game, drink, because Ross didn't add a sound effect when I asked him to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, I think if there's a bubble that's going to pop, it's definitely going to be supply side. Because while I would be very sad if the Mix-6 Patreon money went away, it means I couldn't do the Mix-6, and that's it. Because I have a day job. And I feel like the majority of people on Patreon, on Kickstarter, on YouTube, and overall... And I'm not discounting the people who make their living by it. It's extremely important. It would totally fucking suck for those people. Yeah. But I think if that bubble bursts, it's going to have an overwhelming effect on the people running the platforms. Right. And I think what we need to look to for this in the near future is Uber. Mm -hmm. Mm Because Uber is an economic model that is digitized that relies entirely on the fact... That the people outside in using the academic model are not receiving the prime, primal level of their pay from Uber. Right. They are being subsidized by other jobs. They are being subsidized by fun employment. They are being subsidized by any, by the ACA, right, uh, which may go away soon. Right. The AC go away. AC go away. Um And I feel like their business model only works because of that. And ultimately, if you're looking at metrics, while there are some huge earners on YouTube, on Patreon, on Twitch, on stuff like that, I think the overwhelming majority of it are people like, us, scrapping by for a little extra beer money right. every week. And I feel like it will suck if it goes away, and I'll be very sad if it goes away. But if it goes away, it's going to be the result of how it was handled on the supply side in terms of black boxing your algorithm, not giving fair shakes to your creators, making it difficult for your creators to create content, making it difficult for your users to engage with creators. And I think it's going to fail on that end. Um, And if it fails on that end, I also think that's where the majority of the repercussions are going to be because you have engineers and shit like that. Sure. And I also think Uber's an interesting example because they're fucking it up for no reason at all. Yeah. Well, no. They could easily easily fucking hang on until they got driverless cars. Like, Amazon didn't make a profit for 20 fucking years at this point. Like, um, they could easily hang on until they got their golden goose egg moment, but they're like... Sexist as fuck, and they hate Muslims, right. and they're already super so, exploitative drivers. Yeah, like, no. like they're the they're the um, they're the goofus of this scenario. Like, if Uber makes it, it's amazing. We we ain't never gonna die. We could do anything we want to do right. uh, with that kind of shit. Whereas if you have this, you know, if goofus can't do it, that's going to be kind of the way that I see. Other people not doing it, like Kickstarter's quality control laxes, and they keep on letting in these huge multi-million-dollar projects from established companies that just fucking bilk people. Are there's a major court case because they did something of similar? Same thing for Patreon. Like, I think they're gonna have to fuck it up, right? Like before it goes away, because I think it's too diffuse to be like, oh, we didn't make this margin back on our default ratio everyone stop investing, crash. Because I feel like if you're the kind of person who invests in stocks, you're kind of authoritarian and into what the crowd is doing already because you want to make a shit ton of money. And those people are a little bit more keen to flock than, say, the entirety of the internet uh which i think is what you need for a crash so this one's tricky for me because uh, as is typically the the case here i'm the least educated of the three of us on this topic certainly the least experienced sports players coming up sports players let's next. let's just we're gonna flip right. this table around that's so right you're fine that's right so just hold your hold your girdles folks <laughs> all right um, It strikes me that the the distinguishing feature, the thing which keeps some above water and others below water in in what is a vast universe of functionally freedom media, right? Like you can pay whatever you want for whatever you want anymore. And to Stephen's point, um, it feels like a bubble in that everything is available to you if you're willing to pay even a, a paltry amount, Uh, to anyone creating that content anymore. And to Ross's point, I think that's kind of the nature of this whole thing, that it's not so much a bubble as much as it is a paradigm shift in how media is produced and consumed. But I think that um, based on the feedback that even I've received for this podcast, there's a quality standard now which exists that probably at once didn't exist and will continue to be a more refined standard for cutting lines between things. Well, sure.
1: I mean, look at Penny Arcade's early webcomics to yeah. see how the <laughs> quality shift has changed.
0: Well, yeah, but um, even like people say to me, all the, uh, yeah. p- people are shocked when I tell them that I have a podcast and they listen to it for the first time. They go, oh, well, it had like... Cuts and music, and it was edited. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. So, hashtag <laughs> producer Ros- Ross. Um, what strikes me is that, yeah, cert- certainly the tools are more diffuse and available than ever for anyone to produce anything in what Stephen calls a nerd economy. And I get that we're a little bit beyond that 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 framing. Uh, I don't. I couldn't think of a better word for it. Right. So like, no, yeah. I thought it was no, pretty no, pretty strong. No fault yeah. on Stephen. But but the change there then is okay. So now. You've opened up a new level of competition or distinction, which is yeah, everybody can have a microphone and everybody can record something, but beyond that, how do you distinguish yourselves? And at that point, it becomes quality and content. And that's the thing I'm interested to see in Patreon, because we're seeing that on Kickstarter when it's just like, who wants the latest Kickstarter? Sega! Right. Wait. Right. What? Yeah. Motherfucking Sega launching <laughs> Kickstarter? What am I supposed to do against that, man? Yeah. Uh, well, and,
1: I mean, that's the thing. Like, people do better on Kickstarter. Small companies are doing better than big companies on Kickstarter. Like, you know, you do have weird... I mean, you have weird stuff like Kingdom Death or whatever that makes millions of dollars. Uh, and, yeah, so...
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, like, Kickstarter in itself has is already going through this sort of gentrification process sure. online. And I'm interested to see that on, on Patreon because, like... I don't know what Patreon knows what it wants to be yet, like I see some people going kind of youtuber well the
1: the Patreon and Kickstarter are tools they're i mean they're rather than platforms per se they do have discovery tools to sort of promote you know like oh, you pay- patronize this guy, why don't check out these people and sort of like get people to subscribe to things that they wouldn't otherwise, yeah, but I mean th- their primary function is to. Uh, be forced multipliers for existing fan bases, yeah, like. right.
0: And and that's the other only crash I could see. And this is like a real you know uh, black swan scenario. The only other yeah. crash I could kind of see happening is where this shit starts supporting enough people's entire lives where that, like, you know, your kids are on the line, your family's on the line, mm-hmm. you need to make that patron level, yeah. that people start getting exactly what they want, and that can kill a lot of art. Yeah, absolutely. Like, when it starts becoming, like, rule by consensus, yeah. I need to do a video about this, I need to do a podcast about this, I need to do this about that. Yeah, That just, is, that could be really
1: dangerous for a lot it's, of projects. It's, it's a new career path, and nobody's, there's no there's no guidelines for it. Like, that's right. the thing, is this is all new, and so the people who are Muddling along in it or thriving in it uh, aren't. Yeah, they don't have necessarily. They're going to have to either have foresight or they're going to have to learn from the mistakes of others. Right. Uh, some people are going to have to fall on those trip mines, you know, uh, and tell other people about it. So people are like, oh, I need to, this is what I need to do in order to avoid that kind yeah, of. Yeah, I mean
0: the inter- the internet is a history of well meaning communities that get hijacked by some weird, right. if not downright fucked up things. Well, and, and if it's ever going to be demand side. Bubble popping. Yeah, I think it's going to be because like, oh, Alex Jones found found me somehow, and yeah. they contribute. 75% of my income. Right. Yeah, so for sure. I guess I'm going to rant about the lizard people now on yeah. my podcast. Like yeah. that kind of shit could be real fucked up. Yeah. But, and this is the last thing I want to say on this. We too, and to Ross's point, we, we have navigated some of this uncharted waters, right? Like when we decided to launch Hot Takes yeah. as a backer level, like we had a number of discussions about what that looks like and what we thought would be too much and what we thought would be too little and whether or not we thought we could get anything for it and did it feel bad to monetize it in the first place. And so some of it is, and I like this kind of trip mine landmine metaphor, is like, I don't know, let's try this and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, you know, this isn't about screwing people. This is about making sure that we can also supply ourselves with, in this case, beer and whiskey and time and production costs to do any of the stuff in the first place. And so there is some weird balance to your point, about supply side and demand side, and also about the creation side, what we want to do or be able yeah. to do in the first place, which is why we want to get to $1,000 a month on Patreon so, so we can, can do, do an, an extra podcast, an extra yeah. podcast right? And I, and I will say this, Stephen. On my end, I am scared about everything I do, but that just could be anxiety. I don't think that's because I think a bubble's going to pop. I'm not hesitant about anything I do, We're, which I think you know. is telling of where the market's at. Like, I don't know if anything I do is going to work, but it doesn't stop me from doing it yet, because right, right. I don't know what the consequences are yet. Aside from being a rabid anti-Semite mm-hmm, on mm-hmm, YouTube, mm-hmm. which we're in no danger of doing, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of where I'm at. I don't think there is a bubble, and I don't think it's going to pop. But at the same time, like, does anyone ever? Right, that's right.
1: sort of the nature of a bubble. Well, I mean, if you went to Big Short, you knew that some people knew the bubbles.
0: Well, yeah, it. but they were considered freaks and weirdos. Right. <laughs> like, well, yeah.
1: enough of them. But uh, to to a larger point. Uh, keep in mind, I don't worry, even if there is a bubble, we're nowhere near that case because a vanishingly small percentage of people are able to make a living off of this. I'm in the top 500 mm. or 550, something like that, and in the, in the Patreon. Humble Yeah, Humble Hashtag. Uh, <laughs> and I'm able to make a living from it because I live in one of the cheapest places to live in the country. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, that's less than 500 Patreon accounts. Uh, are able to get un- that much to live in a cheap part of the country, and they don't all do. Yeah. Uh, and YouTubers, there's a sm- only a small percentage of people who are able to make a living, and uh, so we're, we haven't reached that, and, that and that's critical I mass. I think it's even the
0: distribution side. If anything's yeah. going to happen economically to it, it's gonna be on the side of people yeah. that provide the service.
1: I, I think because they have server yeah. farms. Yeah,
0: I ain't got it. I just gotta buy beer every week, right?
1: Well, I they're in there. I mean, that's the thing about the, the Silicon Valley startup thing is iteration. You keep trying new things and see if right. it works. That's what we do with Hot Takes. And uh, yeah, I think we're nowhere near that. We don't. We don't have to worry about that side yet. I yeah. Mean, unless YouTube explodes. Um, all right.
0: I need another beer. We all need other beers.
1: Yeah. Let's do this.
0: Spence, what are you drinking? All right, so this is Against the Grain Breweries Bloody Show. It's a lager with blood orange. And this is interesting for me because our local brewery, uh, Mother's Brinco, has just put out a blood orange Saison. So I'm happy to try something uh, in the blood orange family that is different. So give me just a moment while I taste alive, as is the uh, Stillwater rule. Oh, well, <clears throat> okay, there's that. Um, <laughs> that's a three for me. It's Kill Bill 2. Like the blood orange on the front. Not crazy about the um, weedy logger on the back. Uh, okay, try I it. Also don't like the phrase weedy logger. So kind of the... the I like a, I like a blood orange. The so. wheat hit on the back. It has a kind of an aggressive... Nope. So, nope. Here here's what I'll like in it to and I might be I might be softening It's got a, it's got an A+ plus can though. It does. Oh, the art's fantastic. It looks like it's straight out of Epic Spell Wars. Um, yeah. So, uh, it has almost a like medicine quality to me. So there was uh, a time when I was growing up where I would have to try medicine and then eat a cookie and drink coke quickly to get the medicine down. So it's actually moving from a 3 to a 2 as I let it linger in my palate a little bit. It's got like a grapefruit-esque almost hit halfway through the consumption that I'm not crazy I think about. it's a three for me, but, yeah, I, could, I, yeah, I, I haven't... I'm not going to drink it on a prolonged scale like you are here right. in this segment. Yeah. Which we are calling Sportsplainer. hey oh. It's your second segment vote for you listeners doing the survey. And God you bless so you for for people for, they, for making they this they second. love some sports oh, I love so. that. Uh, Evan G. Cologne? Cologne. Going with it. I, yeah, I'm not good with the accents. I'm an American. Uh, suggest Baseball. Can it be saved from its own irrelevance? And if so, how? I love this question. Yes. So, Evan, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me tell you something really quickly, and I've probably mentioned this already. Don't know. Drunk a lot of the time we're doing this. (laughs) Definitely drunk right now because we did a hot takes before this jam. So I'm a couple beers and some bourbon into things. Um, I'm a tortured baseball fan. Let Let me just say that right now. Uh, I grew up minutes away from the Kansas City Royals stadium. I was a fetus when the Royals won the World Series in 1995. (laughs) Then I waited through 29, almost 30 years of irrelevance while the Royals were the worst team in baseball routinely, only to watch them go to the World Series uh, two years in a row and win, not this last year but the year before, at which point I fell to my knees in my living room on hardwood floors and I cried like a child. So, baseball is near an actual child, a fetal child. An actual (laughs) child, a born child in this instance, rather than the fetal child I referenced earlier, yes. Um, So, I'm a tortured baseball fan. I grew up going to Kauffman Stadium and watching Royals games because you could get in for, like, 50 cents because no one was watching Royals games. You pretty much had to show up and and say that you were a citizen of somewhere and they would let you in the stadium and sit wherever you wanted to. And I largely grew up at some point in my life going to Royals games because if the Royals scored 13 runs, you could take your ticket to a Krispy Kreme Donuts and get a free dozen donuts. So that is why I am pre-diabetic, a little overweight, and a baseball fan. So kind of a trifecta there. I, the third heat, as it were. I'm at least familiar with baseball. I you say, are. Of my sports, I'm most familiar with right. baseball. Well, um, and Sarah, you're... And Sa- yeah, Sarah's obsessed with baseball. She loves us. She counts down the days to spring training. The St. Louis Cardinals. And I count the days I'm going to spend in a bar reading a book and drinking while she watches a game. That's right. Um, so... But I I've been to multiple baseball games. I've been at, I I I was there in the game where McGuire broke the record, which is awesome. I went to like Eight games that whole season. Mark McGuire's home run, home run. Mark McGuire broke the home run record, that is? Yes. Yep. Um, and, uh, so I, I've been to a number of games. I will, I, I've actually not been to baseball game. I've only been to one baseball game since they tore down Old Bush Stadium. Oh, yeah. But you, we used to go to Old Bush Stadium all the time Right. In St. Louis. So I was familiar with baseball. I played Little League. Like, I started playing football and I was like, I'm supposed to, I hit that guy? Yeah. All right. I'll I'll hit that guy. That's my my understanding of the rules before I started playing football. But I actually knew how baseball was played. Sure. um, I will admit it is a sport to drink or knit or do a coloring book. Yeah. Or pick an – it's it's a multitasking sport. It's a multitasking sport by nature. So I've thought a lot about this as someone who watches a, a reasonable to at times excessive amount of baseball. Um, probably not as religiously as I watch NFL games, but uh, and probably more than I watch NBA games unless it's the playoffs, where I'm kind of all in on NBA games. So somewhere in there. I don't believe in the NHL because I grew up in Kansas City that didn't have an NHL team, so I don't know what we're talking about. But let's get back to baseball. Um, in response to Evan's question, can it be saved from its own irrelevance, and if so, how? Here's how I've broken this up. Issues and solutions, all right? Seems pretty reasonable. Okay, seems pretty reasonable. Here are four issues I've identified with baseball as a, casu- a probably more than casual but not super more than casual baseball fan. Issue number one is pace of play. Issue number two is number of games. Issue number three is primetime viewership. And issue number four is superstars. All right, so let me walk through each of these kind of independently for a moment. I I can, like, see this PowerPoint star wiping in front of me. I have done research, is what I am saying to you. All right? So let's talk about pace of play a little bit, which I think is probably the primary issue that keeps a lot of casual fans out of becoming hardcore baseball fans. Baseball games are too fucking long. All right? (laughs) No shit! So, great article on Fox Sports (laughs) written by Nick Schwartz, in which he compares the length of baseball games over the last three years... To other games and major sports. So here's what I can tell you about baseball games off the top. In 2014, the average baseball game lasted three hours and eight minutes. <laughs> All right, Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, unless you're there to drink. Right. It doesn't make sense to go. Right. Uh, Between 2014 and 2015, the league instituted some rules or started instituting some rules to hopefully bring down the pace of play. Mm -hmm. So it moved from three hours and eight minutes in 2014 to two hours and 56 minutes in 2015. Oh, shit. Lightning pace. Making up some ground. Between, it's like Return of the King. Between 2015 and 2016. Extended cut. Between 2015 and 2016, they tried to implement even more rules to bring down the pace of play. And what happened was the pace of play actually extended <laughs> to three hours and 26 seconds. So it's four minutes longer, 2016 to 2015. All right? So here's what I'm saying. Shorten that shit, all right. The league <laughs> has taken a number of steps to reduce the pace of play, which have had mixed results. N- namely, in the last year, the league has limited the amount of time a pitcher can take stepping out of the the box, moving off of the mound, the pitcher's mound, to stretch, uh, to reset, to breathe, to to put. So you're resin saying we on the need ball? more extreme solutions. Well, so here's what I have said. A number of people have called for pitch clocks. So, for example, in the minor leagues, they've set pitch clocks at 20 seconds. You've got 20 seconds between receiving the ball as the pitcher and pitching again. It's reduced the length of games on average between 9 and 12 minutes, right? That's, that's getting me somewhere. Other people have called for a, a limited number of visits to the pitcher's mound by teammates or catchers. Cause what happens a number of times oh, in so baseball. Oh, like timeouts. Yeah. Functionally, a catcher will get a whiff of a tendency that maybe they didn't see. You can't see. go out there and, like, bull Durham and talk about your date last For, night. like, fucking 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it's like... And in this section of the Odyssey, Homer... Yeah, it's, so just shut it down. Okay. So pace of play is an absolute problem. Amount of games is the second major problem that I think baseball really has. Okay. Game design. I'm going to pitch alternate solutions. Okay. There's seventh inning stretch, right? Yeah. Maybe you need to stretch because you need to leave. Right, right. Maybe just seven maybe innings. just cut Yeah, maybe just cut it off two yeah. innings. Yeah. Too extreme? Right. No, not extreme at all. Uh, <laughs> it was an arbitrary decision in the first place. So yeah, we yeah. So can make an arbitrary no, Like question. I've seen, I listened to the game on the radio yeah. where the Cardinals went 26 innings, yeah. which was perhaps the greatest bit of audio comedy I've ever heard yeah. as Joe Buck just starts Existentially losing hope Yeah That the game will ever end Position players are pitching Yeah Yeah. And again for his third Right Major league pitching debut Yeah a third-string center fielder. Right. Whoever we can find. We've pulled a fan out of center field. <laughs> yeah. He seems to be drunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baseball games length are already just fucking arbitrary as shit. Yeah. Why not just cut two innings Exactly. Off? All right. So, second major problem I've identified is number of games. So, let me, let me give it to you in terms of comparison. Stupefying. All right. Baseball teams play too many damn games. All right. So, here's how it goes. NFL teams play 16 regular season games. Their games are roughly as long as an average baseball game. All right. NBA teams play 82 regular season games. Their games on average last 40 minutes less than an average baseball game. NHL teams also play 82 regular season games. Their games on average last 20 minutes less than an average baseball game. All of these then are equal to or roughly shorter than a baseball game. The MLB has 162 regular season games. It sounds so ridiculous by contrast, because it is so ridiculous by contrast. I feel like I finished a baseball game, gone into the parking lot towards my car, and then had Sarah pull me back, because baseball season had started again. (laughs) I'm not fucking lying to you. So I check this. How long does the baseball regular season last? It is 2,430 games over roughly six months for regular season. I think baseball. a pro baseball player gets less time off than a teacher. I, I think a pro baseball player (laughs) is 40 by the time they're 20 because they've done that much work just playing baseball. So too many number of games. Look, it diminishes the value of any single game through the early and middle stages of the season. The nice thing about a football game is that a one-game difference can matter by week four or six. Also, you know that game's taking years off that player's life. That's right. It's some fucking gladiatorial shit. That's right. In a baseball game, uh, a one-game difference, two weeks in, even three months in, isn't going to make all the difference. It will make a difference in the last month, which is really interesting. But you've expended, you've expanded the scope of the season so much that you've diminished the value of any one game. It's also just fucking content fatigue. Like that's just too much of anything. And after a while, I don't want to see, I don't want to see that many of that thing at all. That's so why give I, me a number, right? A um, hundred. They still want it to be the longest, but not like ostentatiously. That's right. That's right. Longest. Yeah. The other problem with the sheer number of games is because they have that many games, they have to put a lot of those games in the middle of the fucking workday, which makes it really hard for your average consumer to be all in on their team unless you've got an AM radio or. That's true. Like, economically, what's the point if no one can fucking attend who has the money to attend? That's right. Because they're all at a fucking job Because they're right at now. work to be yeah. able to pay to attend during primetime games. Yeah. Now, that number has dropped precipitously over the last couple of years. Daytime games as opposed to primetime games. Mm-hmm. But there are still a sheer number of games that are in the middle of the day. Third major problem. Primetime games are, increasing, are, are gaining increased viewership, but the MLB still won't exclusively have primetime games because there are too many fucking games. Here's an interesting stat. Maury Brown for Forbes does an assessment of Nielsen ratings for primetime games in 2016. Finds that nine teams in the major, nine of the US based teams, there's one team that's based outside of the United States, had number one rankings in primetime across all their networks, and that 15 of the 29 US teams had increases in their primetime viewership in 2016. So primetime only games have gone up. The problem is, most of these games aren't primetime only, and they're competing for daytime space with other regional games or local games as well. So again, you're losing out on core demographic viewing time because people are at fucking work in the future to pay for their healthcare or iPhones. All right. Fourth major problem. I just think baseball lacks a pr- like primetime superstars. So if you say who's the best basketball player in the world, people will just quickly go LeBron James. Maybe they'll say Steph Curry, right? But there are people there who are transcendent. If you said who's the best football player, people would say Tom Brady or Peyton Manning while he was playing or Cam Newton. I don't know. There There are recognizable stars that transcend the limits of the game. It's not that not that baseball doesn't have big stars, uh, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Madison Bumgarner, Clayton Kershaw. It's that these people don't get the kind of like worldwide exposure that it feels like the baseball, the basketball, or the basketball and the football stars do. And I can't decide if this is. And a I chicken. feel like the last time that happened was during the home run. Yeah, exactly. Crisis. It was the Mark McGuire. Everyone Sosa. was like PCP right. hulked out because you think about the last person, right? I know the, who Sammy Sosa is, and he had fucking. Steroids up to his gills. And and you know who Barry Bonds was? Yeah. Steroid controversy. You know who Alex Rodriguez was? was? Steroid controversy. Yeah. So – But I knew that name before and after the steroid controversy. Right. And now I just like – it's a person. Pick pick a guy playing baseball and be like – it also feels like baseball teams rotate more players through and so you don't have a consistent team to root for. So – I don't know if this is a chicken or an, this is a chicken or an egg problem. It, I think the problem is baseball seems less popular, which makes its stars less popular, which makes it harder for baseball to be more popular. I feel like there's some snake eating its own tail in there, and I can't figure out where it starts. But all of those things seem to me s- to smack of the problems with baseball. So how do you fix the game? All right, reduce, seven innings. Yeah, yeah. Reduce the pace of play <laughs> or increase the pace of play. Yeah. Reduce the length of games. Reduce the number of games. Hundred tops. Yeah, I think hundred tops. That's our prescription. Uh, and like more. I know it can't be exclusively, but certainly more. Like I, the last stat I saw was from 2014, and it was like 66 to 33 percent primetime games to non-primetime games. I would say aim for like a 75, 25, 80. 20. Recognize that people watch sports at a certain time of the day. That's right. When they're not at fucking work. Yes. And I think that's the best way to recover baseball from its own excessive size and scope is the best guess that i have as a casual baseball player who's also our casual no, we baseball got this salt. they're listening to us right, right now they're definitely mlb is back rob the manfred get, i think he's the commissioner get your shit together you're welcome i don't know you're the commissioner it's probably a good thing because you're not voldemort like robert goodall uh right. yeah right send me your royalty checks or just a large <laughs> donation on patreon would go a long way well, that'd there. be great yep all right oh wait before we before we finish This is segment five, which means if you've made it this far, uh, thanks so much. And if you're not a patron, uh, we're done. But hey, we really appreciate you sticking with us for this episode. As always, if you liked us, be sure to rate or review or both rate and review on iTunes because that helps everyone experience The Mix 6 more. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Mix 6 and Facebook, facebook.com slash The Mix 6. And we really, really appreciate you taking time uh, to listen to us. That was a pro save by Spencer... Paris, and you're paying for that level of quality. I was a reliever. Beer six. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's absolutely right. Thanks. I'm gonna get another beer.